Your financial mission, should you choose to accept it, is to achieve financial clarity. New Intel suggests that bad financial actors are constantly filling the landscape with misinformation and other barriers and obstacles, leaving you with limited time to make the right choices for a successful financial future. To make things easier, we've chosen your team for you. Financial Commander Janine Theus will help lead you to success. As always, should you avoid the excellent guidance you're about to receive, you'll be disavowed. Also, this message will self-destruct in three seconds. Three, two, one. Thanks so much for being here for another edition of Your Financial Mission. Walter Storholt alongside Janine Theus. She is the CEO and founder of Theus Wealth Advisors, your financial commander in Columbia, serving Howard County and beyond. You can find her online at TheusWealthAdvisors.com. That's TheusWealthAdvisors.com. Janine brings her 21 years of experience as a naval intelligence officer and the no-nonsense approach that she developed during that time to the program each and every week to attack finances and make sure that pitfalls in retirement and in the financial world aren't tripping you up. Isn't that right, Janine? Yeah, we're always working on the analysis of things. There we're you trying go. not to make it too heavy or too boring. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. We try and keep things a little light, but also get rid of the no-nonsense approach. Uh, it's kind of just making sure that we hit that middle ground of approachable financial talk, but also making sure that we're giving you great information each week and each and every month here on the show. So we've got a good show on the way today, Janine. We're going to cover a little bit of a news headline that popped up recently that I thought would be fun to talk about. We're going to get a great question from Millie on the mailbag in a few moments as well. And we're going to talk about the 50 shades of gray area in the financial world. So a little that's, bit of... That's going to be a lot of fun because that's a great topic. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen the Fifty Shades of Grey movies? No, no. Okay. I couldn't read the book either. <laughs> Me neither. And this topic won't actually have anything to do with that movie or book. So it's really just a play on words. But we're going to talk about the gray areas in financial planning where there really isn't a black and white, yes or no, right or wrong type answer. So we'll kind of explore those gray areas all coming up on the program today. But first, kind of a fun headline here, Janine, if you missed it, and you're listening to the show today, some news from the IRS. And actually, usually it's bad news I feel like you get from the IRS. This is kind of good news, I suppose. They announced that they're increasing the contribution limit for IRAs and 401ks in 2019. So if we're maxing out our contributions before, should we automatically, Janine, assume that we should increase to the new threshold? Well, I guess it depends on where you are in terms of the retirement date or what you're looking forward to the retirement date and how much is in these retirement accounts. If you've amassed quite a bit, you might want to rethink whether you should do the full contribution. So let's just talk about the full what the contributions are. They were for everyone 18,500 in 401k's, 457s and 403b's. They're now 19,000. And then if you're over 50, there is the standard 6,000 catch-up. So that's quite a bit of money to be putting in to a deferred tax bucket, if you will. And you need to look at 
what's currently in the bucket, what it's projected to grow to by the time you have to take it out in required minimum distributions. Are you going to retire earlier and start that distribution stream? So there are a lot of factors that go into whether or not it makes sense to you for you to continue to do a full contribution. So yeah, it's great that um, the IRS has given us that, you know, quote unquote break, but whether you should put that much money into deferred. And what's really interesting is a lot of people are not doing full contributions until they hit their like 45 to 50 age range. And then all of a sudden they realize, oh, I haven't saved enough <laughs> or I'm making more money than I ever did before. And now I really do need the tax break. So that's part of the other question is, do you actually need that tax break with the new tax laws, et cetera? You have to look at that as well. The IRA contribution went from 5,500 for individuals to 6,000. And then of course you have the thousand dollar catch up. So IRA is not as bad if you have a spouse that doesn't work and you're contributing to your 401k, you can, the spouse can still contribute to that IRA. But the big picture is, do you need to continue to contribute that much money? You know, if your projected growth rate is X amount of dollars and at, 70 and a half year required minimum distribution is going to be pretty large because ostensibly you're deferring the tax into supposedly a lower tax bracket. That may not be the case. So that's something we have to look at. Yeah, it's an interesting uh, thing to get decent news from the IRS on, hey, we're allowing you to do more or something better or else. And uh, But there are some other things to consider there, as you outlined, Janine, to be careful about when you're talking about contributing to different accounts. Maybe there's a more efficient place to do it. Maybe it is the right choice for you. It just all kind of depends on some of those different factors. So just do be aware of that. But a little bit of a change headed into 2019, among many, many other changes this year, that is for sure as well. And some of them we don't even know about, but they'll be coming around the corner shortly, I'm sure. <laughs> Absolutely. It's time to open up the mailbag and get a question here from uh, Millie. Millie writing into us. If you want to submit a question, by the way, go to theuswealthadvisors.com. That's theuswealthadvisors.com. All right. Millie says, as I prepare for retirement, Janine, I feel like I should learn from the best. How do guys like Warren Buffett consistently pick such good investments and how can I apply such strategies? Well, Millie, that's going to be a little different, uh, difficult, so excuse me, for most regular investors to do because Warren Buffett actually buys whole companies and then he gets the revenues from those companies. So it's a little bit different than just buying the stock of a company if you can buy the entire company. So that's not how most investors are going to invest. But one of the things you can learn is what he has advocated for his heirs, which is a globally diversified, properly allocated portfolio. So that's something we do here. And we spend some time teaching the science and evidence based investing techniques and strategies. And so that's what Warren is recommending to all of his heirs, which he's got quite a few, because he realizes that his heirs may not have the business acumen that he has in terms of buying whole companies, turning them around, and then realizing the profits that he realizes. So it's a whole different ball game. He's touted a lot in all the different business articles that you can read on the web, et cetera, but it's a completely different ball game for most people than what he's doing. You know, it's a little bit different than 
you know, you want to buy 100 shares of a company versus buying 100,000 shares of that particular company. Is the- exactly right. You know, and, and some of these moves for companies, the institutions are moving in large blocks, like a million shares, you know, or 500,000 shares. And the thing you need to be concerned about as you prepare for retirement is what is the allocation of your portfolio? What's the strategy for distribution? What is that going to look like? What are all the other factors that are going to influence, you know, your income in retirement? So that's a different conversation than looking for the right stock yeah. or the right company. You need to be more broadly diversified than just one company or even 10 companies because you're not sitting in the boardroom making the decisions for those companies. So you have no control over stock price. One other thing before we move on to Janine, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe I heard as well or have learned that Warren Buffett, and this is something we can probably take as a learning lesson from him as well, even though it doesn't, uh, you know, it's not a direct application, but we can kind of extrapolate here is he also doesn't make short-term investments. Everything he does, it seems, is with the long-term in mind. So to him, he's not buying a company and flipping the company and trying to get rid of it and turn a profit. He buys a company, changes the you know organization, gets it set up for the long haul, and he plans to hold that thing for pretty much ever. And we can kind of take it, some of that to our own investing lives as well. That is a great point. He does buy for the long-term. And if you are close to retirement or even before retirement, certainly while you're in retirement, you have to have a long view on your investments. And that means you're not trying to buy and sell individual stocks. You're not track record investing. You're not trying to time the market. You need a proper allocation and and a, a risk tolerance, if you will, which you're building into the allocation, a strategy that you can live with for potentially 30 years. So, the portfolio has to work for you for that long. So that's completely different than buying a company and then either overhauling the company or making changes within the company, you know, to the bottom line, the income line, the revenue line. Um, that's completely different. Now, if you're, that company is in your portfolio, great. As part of the entire mix, you do receive some benefit from that, but you're not at risk for that one particular company. Whereas if he's owning the company, there's a little more risk there. So. Yep. Very good points. Thank you for the question, Millie. If you want to submit your questions, don't forget theuswealthadvisors.com, the place to go. All right. Our main topic of conversation today, Janine, we dubbed it at the beginning of the program, 50 Shades of Gray Area. Not everything in the financial planning world is black and white. In fact, I think most things aren't black and white, which makes it probably a little harder to plan for. It'd be easier if we just knew what was right and wrong and you just choose to point A or point B. But there's usually a lot of gray area involved. So I want to identify some of the issues where a nuanced discussion, you know, where you have these gray area conversations, where they pop up more often than not. And feel free to disagree if I give you one that seems like it is a black and white discussion. Certainly let me know. But what about, um, you know, I think a common discussion among somebody entering retirement and thinking about where they're going to live in the future comes down to, you know, do we pay that house off early or not? Is that kind of a gray area discussion? It really is. And one of the things I like to say when I teach classes is really relevant to this gray area in that there really are no right or wrong decisions when it comes to finances. There are some better decisions or more economical decisions it's always going to depend on your circumstance. So 
a lot of people, a lot of people ask this question about whether they should pay off the house early or not. And I would have to say, like most answers to these questions is it depends. It depends on how young you are. If you're 40, then no, it doesn't make sense to pay off the house early. If you're 60, maybe it does or closer to 70, maybe you want it paid off. There are strategies to do that. One of the strategies I don't like is purchasing a 15-year mortgage because you can create your own. What the 15-year mortgage does is lock you into a higher premium payment every month, whereas a 30-year is gonna be a much more manageable payment. You have control of the cash flow. And then if you wanna pay off the house early, there's a way to do that over time without subjecting yourself to this, you know, much higher premium or mortgage payment over those years. So you can kind of plan out when you want the house paid off. It's interesting when you look at the statistics that people refinance between every five to seven years. And then the other factor in whether you should pay your house off now early or not is how long are you planning to stay there? If you're going to move in five years or if you're going to move in 10 years, I wouldn't pay the house off. So if you're going to move out of state or you're going to move to another town or whatever, that, that, that has to enter into your decision because paying the house off early is just giving the money to the bank where it's going to, you know, the house is maybe you're going to appreciate it 2 or 3%, where over time a portfolio is going to earn more than 2 or 3%. At least that's the objective. So it's a, you have to look at that arbitrage, which one's going to be better for me economically over time. Great points, and that is a good conversation to make sure that you're getting into the details and the nuances of it. It's not just going to be the same as your neighbor as it will be for you when it comes to making the right decision there. We also, I think, see this, Janine, when it comes down to talking about things like Roth conversions. You know, should I do a Roth conversion or is that not right for me? Sometimes you hear people very firmly in one camp or the other, but it seems like it's one of those things that has a lot of that gray area in the discussion. Well, this is a conundrum even for advisors, because I have several colleagues who are kind of pushing the Roth conversion idea of then um, diffusing the ticking tax time bomb, which is your 401k or the multiple IRAs or 403bs that you have, where you have an awful lot of money in those, those boxes, if you will, the tax deferred boxes. And at some point, you're probably going to pay a higher tax. So if you're trying to offset that by doing a Roth conversion, it might make sense to do the conversion. The problem is there are income limits on being able to do the Roth conversion. So you have to look at another strategy for doing the conversion. One of the other dilemmas is if you are close to retirement, it may not make sense because when you do a Roth conversion, you have to pay the taxes due at the time. So you're going to have to either stagger conversions I mean, like if you had $500,000 in a 401k, I would not do a Roth conversion with the whole amount because you're paying a lot of taxes at that point in time. And that when you pay taxes, the money goes away from you, does not return. <laughs> so there's lost opportunity cost on the ability to earn on the money that goes away. So Roth conversions really do need to be strategic. And then if you're younger, say 40s in the 40s, it might make sense to do Roth conversions if you've put a tremendous amount of money into a 401k. So again, it depends. The answer to the question is it depends on where you are in your timeline towards retirement and then how much is already in those accounts. And then are you above the income limit? And if you are above the income limit, then how do you get to a Roth conversion, kind of a backdoor Roth? 
And that requires sitting down and kind of working through the numbers. It's the uh, broken boomerang. You throw and it doesn't come back. You got to watch out for those. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I never could get those boomerangs to work as a kid. Did you ever? <laughs> it used to seem like I got one every year for Christmas and you'd go out and you'd throw it a couple of times and it would just go farther away each time you threw it. <laughs> <laughs> Not like in the shows, the movies. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Roth conversion is definitely a, an important one. What about, uh, oh, life insurance. We got to throw that into the equation here. Term life versus permanent life. You talk about two sides that feel very strongly about one or the other. This debate often sparks that. Oh, yeah. And it's been going on for probably 40 years or 50 years. Uh, remember back in the 70s, I think is when it started, it was buy term and invest the difference. Well, if you look back to that time, what was happening simultaneously with that? Because before that, permanent life insurance was a place for people to hold their cash. But once the mutual fund industry started to grow and it grew exponentially, that's where the mantra came out, buy term and invest the difference. The problem with that is a lot of people didn't invest the difference. Or if they did, you know, they had various experiences, some good, some not so good. The problem with that is if you have term insurance, it's for a specific term, it's built that way. So it's either a 10 year term, 20, now they have 30 year terms. But what you have to hope in that strategy is that the investment experience has been a positive one and it's been able to offset the fact that at 30 years you might be uninsurable and you can't renew your term. So the industry at large has basically come out and said you don't need insurance in retirement. I would disagree with that for many people because when you have insurance in retirement, it takes the pressure off your investments to perform. So I'm kind of a, a proponent of looking at both or using both types so that you not only have an investment portfolio, you might have an insurance portfolio where some of it is permanent. And the permanent side takes away some of the risk on the investment side. But that's not everybody looks at it that way. Yep. All right, let me see if I can spark some controversy and really get into the gray areas here as we talk about 50 shades of gray area in the financial world. Put off... Social security or start it as early as possible. Why isn't that a black and white decision? Because it's going to depend quite a bit on who the high earner is, what your situation is, and getting people to realize that if you, especially for the higher earner, if you start early, you are losing a percentage of your full benefit. So for instance, if you start taking social security at 62, the benefit is 25% less than it should be at your full benefit age, which is usually 66 or for some people now 67. And some people are doing that because they're afraid social security is not going to be around. We'll save that topic for another conversation, but essentially it really does depend on what else is going on in your world that you would take it that early. I try to at least get people to not take early, but take at your full benefit age, because then there are some other things that you can bring to play you know, in that scenario, but you don't really want a discount. Plus, if you take it early, there's also an earnings test. So that means for every $2 you earn, they're withholding $1 of benefit. So it may not make sense for you to take early, but again, it depends on your situation. If you become disabled early and you can't work, maybe that makes sense to take social security early, but you're locking in that lower benefit amount. 
If you're listening to the show today, I hope you are kind of thinking about some of these different topics we're covering. We're going to hit one more topic in a moment, but I hope you're thinking about these. And if you felt very strongly about a particular belief, you know, oh, I was always planning to take Social Security at 62 and, you know, or maybe it's the other direction. I was going to wait until I, you know, the last possible moment to take it so I can get the highest benefit possible. Really think about why you came to that line of thinking. Is it because of your situation? Have you really analyzed, is that the best choice for you? Or is it something because you heard or you just thought that was always the way to do it or that's how mom did it or one of those kinds of reasonings? And if it's one of those other reasonings, it's not based off of your own situation and more so just because it's kind of a preconceived notion, definitely would be worth having a conversation about your situation and what the right answer for you might be. Social Security, I think, is just a great illustration of that, but it goes beyond just that conversation into many others in the financial world as well. Social Security, a very good one where a lot of people kind of feel strongly on, I'll take it right now because it might not be around any longer, and so I'll go ahead and jump into it. Well, is that really the best thing for your your situation? It may not be, so good to analyze those things. Uh, One last thing, Janine, here. What about long-term care insurance? It's that topic that a lot of people don't really like to talk about, the need for long-term care. But you have this option of having insurance against it. A lot of people think maybe it's too expensive. They don't end up putting it up in their portfolios if they're kind of you know not doing a lot of research into their situation. Should you buy long-term care insurance or not? Why is that a gray area conversation? Well, first and foremost, you have to have a long-term care conversation with your family because everyone is going to need some kind of care and people are living much longer because our healthcare here is very good compared to the rest of the world. And so with longer longevity, I think the last statistic I saw, 50% of 85-year-olds are experiencing Alzheimer's. So you need a plan in place, whether it's family (laughs) or some kind of assisted living or some kind of in-home care. So the insurance part is really designed to take the pressure off your investments, especially if you were going to need, you know, additional care, if there's additional care costs, or you're planning to leave some money to family, or to assist with that, having the insurance in place at least gives you a respite of from one to three to five years, where the long term care insurance is paying for some of the cost. If a lot of times it's not all of the cost, but it's at least paying for some of the cost for long term care. And it is very difficult. It is a little bit of a crapshoot to figure out, okay, how long am I going to need that care or be in care? And nobody ever knows that. But what people who are dealing with parents who are in care can tell you, it's darned expensive. And most of the people who are watching their parents go through this are the ones buying long-term care insurance because they see the direct result of either having it or not having it for their parents. The other thing I would point out to folks is if you are a single female or single or you have no children, you need to seriously look at who is going to be your advocate for care. So you have to consider that. And if you don't have somebody very close to be your advocate, having the long-term care insurance does give you some options for care. It's a hard thing for some people to talk about, but when you look at it from a financial standpoint and just from a care standpoint, you really have to stop and think about what options you want to have when you get to that point. 
Great points, Janine, and I think wise ways to think about all of this. Certainly, the 50 shades of gray area in the financial world. We're just scratching the surface on a lot of these different topics, but I hopefully it's an illustration of why it's so important to work with an advisor who can keep all of these things in mind for you and bring these up. Sometimes we don't know to talk about these things in the first place. We don't know to bring them up and have the discussion. You know, is this good for me? Am I thinking the right way about these kinds of things? Janine will help kind of extract those things from the conversation and make sure that you're bringing them to the forefront so you can have the best financial plan possible. If you want to get in touch with Janine, a couple of different ways you can do it. Dial 443-718-6311 to set up a conversation. That's 443-718-6311. Or check Janine out online at theuswealthadvisors.com. That's theuswealthadvisors.com, the place on the website. You can get your own retirement rescue toolkit as well. This is a toolkit that Janine has put together with a book packed with an audio CD, a DVD, reports, and other goodies in there. Just click on the description in today's episode. Go to the link, and you'll be able to see where you can order the toolkit. And this is a free box. This is a free toolkit that Janine will send to you. So you can get that retirement planning process started by learning some of the essentials with this toolkit and a great way to get to know Janine a little bit better as well. TheusWealthAdvisors.com, your place to go. Well, Janine, another great topic in the books. Thanks, as always, for your help and guidance, and we'll look forward to another great show. Thanks, Walter. This was great. I appreciate it, and we'll talk to you next time. Sounds great. That's Janine Theus. I'm Walter Storholt. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk to you next time on Your Financial Mission. Your Financial Mission.